Now let's open up with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask your blessing upon our time today. May we be open, opened up. Help us to put those things down which worry us and concern us and weigh on us. That there is space inside of us for your spirit to fill us up. That we may be inspired and renewed by your word, by the work of the people who began your church, such that we may, 2,000 years later, be able to change your church for the future that you see and the hope that you hold for our world. Be with all those who need our healing touch, those that we hold in our hearts, that they may know your presence. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A reminder that our schedule is on bookmarks available for you at the doors. In a few weeks, on November 21st, that is Thanksgiving week, we will not meet on Wednesday. It would be such a bummer to show up here when no one else is here. So just make sure Wednesday before Thanksgiving, in case you were super energetic about being here, don't. We will start up again the next week on November 28th. And so do pick one of these up in case you don't have one. Today we are looking at chapter 7, chapter 7 of Acts. Chapter 7 is a much longer chapter than the last few that we've read together, and it's a dense chapter. On the one hand, you can kind of skip over most of chapter 7 and get to the action, which is Stephen is stoned. But in Stephen's address, in his speech to the council, there is a lot of stuff that we can unpack. And so for today, we're going to look at Stephen was arrested at the end of chapter 6, and going into chapter 7, Stephen has the opportunity to, in essence, explain himself. He does so in a way that does not please the council, and he is executed. There's the big arc of chapter 7. What he says to the council is pretty remarkable. And last week I said to you that I think Stephen's martyrdom, he is the first Christian martyr, recorded martyr, that his martyrdom is a critical moment for the creation of the Christian church. Because it's the moment when martyrdom becomes, I mean, to put it kind of simply, Jesus obviously is perhaps the holy sacred martyr, so to speak, although we don't call Jesus a martyr. That's, that's not what happened, right? Jesus' giving of himself into death was in order to defeat death. For us to somehow model the faithfulness that death is not the end, that is a new idea for these Christians. Now, dying for your principles is not new at this point. And we'll talk about that for a minute. But the idea that Stephen would take the opportunity to speak a truth that he knew may ultimately end in his death was a pivotal moment for the Christian church. So we are going into chapter 7. And there are really only two sections. Uh, I I spoke to and wrote to. Sorry. So one is going to be Stephen's speech. And two is Stephen's execution. So let's remember how we got here. The church was growing really fast. The apostles needed some help. They tapped seven men to be anointed as leaders in the congregation, to actually take care of people in the congregation, and we historically name them deacons. It's the beginning of the idea of the diaconate. And it's not just deacon as we think of deacon in the Episcopal Church, although it it sort of is. It's deacon sort of in the way that we see in other denominations, think maybe Baptists or Presbyterians and others, where there are people who are tapped to take care of the congregation. Last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at pastoral care and the way that we take care of one another here at the church. And one of the things that I think Episcopalians, and maybe Maybe anyone with, like, collared clergy have trouble with, although it's probably not unique to us, 
is we often think pastoral care is care done by pastors. And that's not what that means. Pastoral care is care done pastorally. So we actually go to someone as a Christian person to take care of them. So it's not just being nice. Pastoral care is, goes beyond nice. There's a depth to it. There's almost a, a sacrificial sense around taking care of someone within a Christian community. That's not, it's nice, yes, and more. In a way, these, these deacons were tapped to care for the people who were most vulnerable in this early Christian community. But Stephen was perhaps the first among those seven, and he very quickly shifts beyond making sure people have enough food. Stephen begins to speak out, and he's very loud. He draws a lot of attention. What he says is not perhaps um, politically correct, and the council doesn't like it. They arrest him, and they bring them in front of, of the entire group. That's how we start chapter 7. Stephen has been arrested, and he's not—it's hard to say that he is on trial. He is mostly, but he's being questioned, and that's an important note to make. Stephen's fate is not yet sealed. Stephen has been duped a bit. We see at the end of chapter 6 that there are people who speak falsely about Stephen. The Jewish leaders have identified some patsies who can show up and badmouth Stephen. And so Stephen's not really doing what they say he's doing, but he's probably not doing something that they like. And so by bringing him in front of the council, in essence, what they're saying is, explain yourself. And that's how chapter 7 starts. It's important that we note that Stephen could explain himself in a way that would set him free. Stephen could easily walk into that space and say, well, whatever they said is not true. I'm really a good guy. And the council would kind of have to let him go because they can't really prove that he was doing whatever it is they thought he was doing. Stephen could also do what we've seen Peter do. Peter's already gone in front of the council, and Peter's moment in front of the council is about Jesus. Peter explains why he has faith in this man named Jesus. There's a difference in saying he, you have faith in Jesus and doing what Stephen did. Stephen goes, G Stephen basically doesn't say much about Jesus. What Stephen does is he systematically criticizes the entire Jewish system. Stephen goes with door number three in this option, right? Door number one is, I didn't do that. Door number two is, Jesus is a great guy. And that's really where the other apostles are. Stephen goes with door number three, which is, I'm going to tell you why everything that you are doing here is wrong. We need that clarity of context before we start moving through Stephen's speech, or else we're not going to quite get what Stephen is doing and why they are so mad. Let's go step by step through this speech. So pull out your Bibles. Chapter 7, we're going to start with verse 2. And we're going to do a little line of thought here. Stephen, in verse 2, starts with God. It's a good place to start. The glory of God. All right, so he's called God. The glory of God appeared to our ancestor, Abraham. The glory of God appeared to our ancestor, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and go to the land that I will show you. Stephen begins with God's revelation to Abraham, the covenant that God set with Abraham. Stephen wants to make sure that he points out Abraham's faithfulness in God, faithfulness to walk away from everything he knew. If we put ourselves back in Genesis. Abraham had a very good life, secure. He was 
we, we would probably say Abraham was wealthy. Abraham was not ridiculously wealthy, but Abraham was totally secure. He was in a good place. He had cattle, he had staff, he had all that sort of stuff. He was in a good place. God shows up and says, leave all of this and go over there to a place you don't really know because I said. And Abraham did it. And so Stephen starts with this moment of faithfulness. Abraham leaves everything he knows, leaves his security, leaves his power, leaves his family, because God said go. Shift to verse 6. God spoke in these terms that his descendants would be resident aliens in a country belonging to others who would enslave them and mistreat them during 400 years. God's covenant with Abraham, if we remember, is not exactly the cleanest covenant ever. God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to move, and Abraham moves. Then God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to give your descendants a whole bunch of stuff, but it's not for you. It's for them. Like, thank you very much. So, you know, Abraham's left everything, and God said, well, it's going to matter to your descendants, but not to you. And as the story goes, there was a moment when his descendants were challenged because that covenant seemed very far away, perhaps even untrue. And so we jump to verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and enabled him to win favor and to show wisdom when he stood before Pharaoh. So Stephen has gone from God to Abraham to Joseph. Okay, he's building this argument. He goes to Joseph because in Joseph, we see the first big theme in Stephen's speech. The people who are rejected become the vessels by which God saves. Okay? Joseph becomes the first mini-example. Moses will shortly become the big example. And it's likely not too difficult to figure out he's going to ultimately land on Jesus as being the biggest. All right, so he's building this case of the people rejected become God's vessels. And that's what he says about Joseph. Joseph goes into Egypt, sold, rejected by his family, sold into slavery, and yet God was with him. Do not skip that line. God stayed with the one rejected. And Joseph's faithfulness allowed him to be the rescuer. That is what Stephen says, the rescuer of the people. And so as Stephen continues in this little speech, he explains the story we know, which is Joseph ends up in Pharaoh's court. Out of his faithfulness, he becomes, he's, he's given the capacity to interpret the dreams. And through that interpretation, he saves Egypt from famine. But even more so, he saves Egypt from famine so that the Israelites can be saved from famine. But as the Israelites are brought into Egypt— there's a period of time when God seems quiet. That 400 years that Joseph, I'm sorry, that Stephen alludes to is the period of time that the Israelites are in Egypt, in captivity. And then Stephen shifts to the second big example. Look at verse 20. After the Israelites have been in captivity 400 years, at this time, Stephen says, Moses was born, and he was beautiful before God. For three months he was brought up in his father's house, and when he was abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Stephen goes on and on into Moses' story, but the point of his story about Moses is reiterating the point of the story about Joseph. There was a rejection. There was a vulnerability. There was a moment when any objective observer would have thought they were in trouble, that God had left them, 
and that all was lost. And yet it was not so. God stayed with Moses. And in fact, Stephen implies, not, not explicitly, but relatively clearly, that God's purposes were used in setting up Moses to be the only person who could be the bridge between Israel and Egypt. Right? I, I think if you were with me when we went over the story of Moses on Sunday morning, you would have heard me say that Moses had this unique capacity to go back to Egypt and see the people he knew. If we think about Moses being out in the wilderness, seeing the burning bush and God saying, I want you to do this, and Moses said, I don't want to do it, and he said, we got to do it anyway, and so Moses said, fine, and so he went back to Egypt. How did Moses get access to Pharaoh? He knew him, right? This was his brother. He was brought up with in Egypt, in the Pharaoh's court, right? The boy who was his brother became the Pharaoh, and when Moses shows back up, he's able to access Pharaoh because they knew each other. This wasn't just some guy coming out of the desert wanting Pharaoh's attention. That would not have worked. It's a person he already knew, allowed Moses to do something remarkable. Stephen has set up systematically that Joseph and Moses had access, and it is through their pain that they were actually able to rescue, right? That's important. Moses, through his pain, became the rescuer of Israel. But here's where it really gets good. Stephen shifts at this point. Everyone would have been with him, right? I mean, just imagine up to this point, all of the council would have been nodding along, right? God came to Abraham, made a covenant. Yes, that happened. Abraham's covenant was fulfilled in Joseph. Yes, that happened. Moses went in and became the rescuer of the Israelites. Yes, they're with him. And then there's a pivot. Look at verse 39. Stephen says in verse 39, our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, Moses, and instead they pushed him aside, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make gods for us who will lead the way for us. And for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. At that time they made a calf, offered a sacrifice to the idol, and reveled in the works of their hands. Now Stephen is starting to stab Stephen said, Moses did all this stuff, and yet the Israelites complained against him. If we remember the story of Sinai, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the commandments, and he's just gone too long. They are impatient, and they say to Aaron, Moses is gone. He may be dead. We need to figure out how to get out of this mess, because although they got out of Egypt, which is good, they are now 600,000 plus, out in the middle of nowhere at the foot of a mountain, totally vulnerable. So although it's not bad, it's not yet good. And they need to make sure that there's some God on their side. And so they create this golden calf. And we can totally explain this away. It's so human, so human to be impatient, so human to think that we need to do something in order to make happen what we want to happen. And so they create this golden calf, and we can even read that story as remaining faithful to Yahweh and simply expressing their faithfulness incorrectly. That's a very charitable way of reading it, which I'm fine with. One way or the other, it's not what Moses said. Moses, who was God's representative— who had done this amazing stuff in the name of God, gave them a specific way to be. And in a matter of a couple weeks of impatiently waiting for Moses to come out down the mountain, they flipped. At this point, I have to think the council is beginning to understand where Stephen's going. This is not the part that they like. 
And the real reason I think the council starts to not like this is at the very end of verse 41. They reveled in the works of their hands. Do not skip that line. It is very important for Stephen's entire speech that he mark how the Israelites were very proud of what they had built. Because that's ultimately where he's going. Stephen continues to show how the Israelites have gotten this wrong. Oh, I forgot this. Sorry, Moses. Stephen continues to show how the Israelites got this wrong. Look at verse 44. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness as God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. Pause. Through Moses, God tells them to build the ark. And it is in the ark, within the tent, that God is physically present for the Israelites. The whole story of the wilderness period is that God walks with the Israelites in the wilderness. He sent them back out into the wilderness. Here's a quickie, just recap. They receive the commandments. Moses is really angry. He smashes the tablets. He grounds down the golden calf, makes them all drink it. Remember that part? That's the part we don't do in Bible school. So <laughs> Moses gets mad, makes them all drink the gold. And then when they get to the promised land, they send the 12 spies into the promised land, and they come back, and except for Joshua and Caleb, the other 10 spies say, these people are too big, they're too strong, we can't go in and claim this land. Joshua and Caleb said, no, no, we can do it because God's on our side. But the people got scared and they said, we don't want to go. And God sent them back out into the wilderness for 40 years, not because 40 years was somehow a necessary cleanse. It was the amount of time needed to make sure all of the adults above 20 died because they were guilty of not having faith that God would deliver them into the promised land. So when they swung back around and they hit the promised land again, Joshua takes the, the representation of God's presence with the Israelites, the ark, into the promised land with him. That's what they say right here. Our ancestors brought it in, it being the ark, with Joshua. All right, so we've gone Moses to Joshua. And as we continue, middle of verse 45, and it, the ark, was there until the time of David, who found favor with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. Boom. We've gone from Solomon, I mean from Joshua to Solomon. So here's the arc of Stephen's testimony. The covenant made with Abraham is jeopardized by Joseph's rejection. And yet Joseph rescues the people. Jeopardized again by Moses's rejection. And yet Moses rescues the people. Jeopardized again by the people's fear of those who live in the promised land. And yet Joshua rescues the people through his faithfulness and brings them into the promised land. And then there is a house built with human hands that the people believed contained God. And that's the real mark of what Stephen is saying here. God is bigger, bigger than anything they think. And the parameters that they have built around their understanding of God is limiting them, not God. The law, the walls, the lore, the rules. God has not been bound by what we have built, but our understanding and faithfulness to God is what has been bound 
in all that our hands have built. When he shifts here at the end, he seals his fate. And if we look at verse 51, his closing remarks, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, ouch, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. That's hardcore. Stephen has created a narrative that points to our human fallibility. And what I think is important for us to note is that the target of this message may have been the Jewish leadership, but what the Christians understood is that this weakness was a human weakness. That day's target may have been the council, but they simply are one small group that represents our human fallibility. Now, they happen to be the people who decided that Stephen should be executed. But Stephen's message is much bigger than just the people in the council. Stephen threatens the very structure of the Jewish leaders. And as you know, people in power want to keep their power. And so they immediately decide that he must be killed. Now, before we get to his execution, I want to know if there are any thoughts or questions about the arc of this story. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the question was, was Solomon wrong to have built the temple? Which, when I read this, preparing for today, was the one thing I looked up. Because as Stephen was going through this, I thought, wait, you know, I'm pretty sure God said build the temple. That is the way the story is told. So the little quickie story of David and Solomon, there were three kings over the united kingdom of Israel, sort of. Saul was, or, was consecrated as the first king over Israel, except Saul did not have the political capacity to truly unite the tribes. So he was king, kinda, but never really reached the unification point. David was consecrated before Saul's death because Saul had just failed to accomplish the task of unification. And if we remember, I don't know if you even know the story, but if you do, if you remember the story of Saul, Saul was so jealous and angry that David had been anointed before his death, that Saul, in essence, fell into madness. He just digressed into paranoia and anger, and he thought everyone was against him, and ultimately committed suicide. He's one of only, I think, six, maybe seven people in the Bible who actually committed suicide. So, Saul's gone, David becomes king, and David actually has the capacity to unify Israel. So David does so economically, um, structurally in the government, moves the capital to Jerusalem, brings the ark into Jerusalem, really establishes all the whole system, but stops short of building the temple because God says it's not yours to build. Solomon becomes king after David, and it's Solomon's to build. Solomon builds the temple through his wisdom and his generosity and all of that good stuff. So I don't think we should read Stephen's speech as Solomon being wrong to build the temple as much as we should read Stephen's speech as the temple becoming a boundary around the faithfulness of the people. 
It's sort of like when I say, where's the church? If your answer is the building, you've missed it. It's not a wrong answer, right? Of course, that is, that is the church in one sense. But when I say what is the church, the actual body of Christ, that's us wherever we are. Which is one of the interesting things about Christianity. We don't have as strong a link to place that, say, Jews and Muslims do. It's not that it doesn't matter to us. I mean, especially Episcopalians. We like our churches, right? I mean, one reason you never see Episcopal churches torn down and rebuilt is because once a church is built, like, that's the church. It doesn't matter if it's too big, if it's too small, if it's too old, if it's too ugly. It doesn't matter. That's our church. However, if push came to shove and we, for some reason, couldn't be on this spot anymore— we actually do know that we are the church wherever we are. And the building is not the most important thing. We may love it. We may want to maintain it. We should. But if push comes to shove, we can walk away. Which is why, in the last 50 years, the population of Christians in Israel and the Holy Land has gone to virtually zero. Christians used to make up nearly half the total population in Israel. And now it's 2%. Why? Christians don't really care. I mean, it's the Holy Land it is, and we go visit, and it's nice to make a pilgrimage, but honestly, like, if you really want it, like, we'll go, right? I mean, you want that rock? Have it. It's really okay. Because God's bigger than that. That's why we don't really get into, and when I say we, I mean Christians, it's not perfect, but that's why Christians, by and large, don't really get into the whole who owns Jerusalem kind of stuff, because it's a nice place. It's a holy spot. We don't need it in order to actually be Christian. I think that for the creation of the temple, the temple became more important than what it represented. That's the problem. And I think we understand that. And I, I, I dare say that for some Jewish groups, that's still a reality. Most of the Jews I know are more kind of, you would say, not, not perhaps the strictest Orthodox Jews. Um, they tend to be the ones that, yes, Jerusalem still matters. I mean, it's a, it's a good place, but they're not grieving over the temple spot like some do. It's a nice place to go like we think it's a nice place to go. And would they go and pray there? Sure, they would go and pray there, just like we would. But grieving their heart? Not really. It, it's not like that anymore for most. The Jews that we know in this country, that, that's mostly where they would land. Is It's a sacred spot, of course, but they actually, I think, have shifted in that understanding in a way that's good, that I think Stephen would say is good, because the temple, although important, is not more important than God. Is that that's a lot more words than you wanted, but any other questions about this before we get to the execution? So now let's shift to the execution. Small little end of chapter 7. Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. Let's take a minute to talk about martyr. A martyr is, by definition— a person who sacrifices something, especially their life, for the sake of a principle. All right, I'll say it again. A person who sacrifices something, most often their life, for the sake of a principle. Martyrdom was not new at this point in history. In fact, there are stories in the Maccabees about Jewish martyrs especially around some of the groups in that region 
that were trying to take them over. So Maccabees are a set of books that are in what we call the Apocrypha. So here's just a quick little Bible moment. The Roman Catholic Church had a Bible that is technically bigger, had more books in it, than what the Reformers thought should be there. By Reformers, I specifically mean Martin Luther and John Calvin and others. Those European mainland Reformers took some books out. Now, the Anglican Reformers, remember Anglican is not Protestant. The Anglican Reformers, who were geographically separated from the European mainland Reformers, right? So you've got Anglican Reformers who just couldn't quite communicate with the people on continental Europe because of the channel, right? The English channel kept them separated. It was difficult to communicate. And so they evolved their reformed ideas a little separately than what happened on continental Europe. They never quite bought that these books shouldn't be in the Bible. And so instead, Anglicans, as we always do, landed somewhere in the middle. So rather than keep the Roman books solid or throw them out, they kind of partitioned them in this little bitty section between the Old Testament and the New Testament called the Apocrypha. If you have a New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which is what we read, you're going to have a set of books between the Old and New Testament that is marked as the Apocrypha. I had someone once say, the Apocrypha is... What? Oh, shoot. What was the phrase he used? Um, important, not authoritative, or something like that. There was a person, a lector in my church in Birmingham who would get up, and whenever there was a random— one of the readings was from the Apocrypha. He would say, a letter from the important and yet not authoritative book of Maccabees. I mean, would have be like how he would introduce it. Um, it's—, it's they tell the story mostly, not, not all of them. Some of them are fantasy, like Daniel and others, prophetic visions, and actually quite like, you know, Susanna and the Dragon, like Bell and Dragon, that sort of stuff. I mean, there's some good stuff in there that are that's totally entertaining if you've never read it. But the Maccabees are history between what we would consider perhaps the end of the Old Testament and, and the New Testament. They tell stories about Jews who stood up to the groups that were trying to conquer Israel. And in that moment, when I say they stood up to, they would, at threat of life, profess their faith in Yahweh. And there are many stories in the Maccabees of the execution of these Jewish martyrs for their faith. So martyrdom is not a new idea. Stephen just happens to be doing it in a new way. And Stephen's martyrdom is, I hate to say, is a choice. There is a difference in an army overtaking your city and making you kneel in a line and telling you you've got to deny your faith or be killed than what is happening here. Stephen goes to the temple, antagonizes the council, and when he gets in front of the council, makes sure that they know very clearly that he is committed to his antagonizing ideas. I mean, we may like his ideas, but objectively, we have to see that Stephen kind of went off and did this to himself in some way. So it's slightly different. And Stephen's willingness to do that shifts the idea of martyrdom. It's not something that's being put on top of him as much as he claims it. That's a big moment in the history of Christianity. Up to now, people like Peter have stopped short of being so antagonistic that it would result in his execution. Following Stephen's experience here, that shifts, and we will see that in the life of the apostles and in other disciples, 
there is an almost pride in martyrdom where if you do enough to make enough of the powers mad, you've actually been faithful. We still see that in what I would describe as petulant ways in this country, where there are people within churches who will do things that often just make people mad, and then they wear that as a badge of honor, that they've made the stodgy people mad, and that they are somehow wonderfully faithful. I see that in people, colleagues, or those I know who I, I say, you know, they, they wish they could have been attacked by dogs in the civil rights movement. They were just too young. And so now they take any opportunity they can to fall on their sword for rights in kind of, I mean, not to say that their efforts aren't worthwhile, but it's, they're almost silly. Like, they just are wanting attention rather than trying to be productive. I mean, their, their desire is a good desire for, you know, equality and all that good stuff, but the way they go about doing it is just a little too dramatic, and it would be more helpful to do it perhaps in other ways. We, as Christians, have inherited this martyrdom idea because of Stephen, where if we look back at our saints, many of the great saints of the church were martyrs, and the story that was told of them is that they were so faithful even unto death that they become a model for us. And we see moments in Christian history where martyrdom becomes a badge of honor, not something that people are forced into, but something they go seek out in order to... Um, I will give them the benefit of the doubt. I think the church uses their martyrdom as a means of inspiring others to potentially do the same. So there's my little bit on martyrdom. We'll talk about a little bit more how this may be understood today. But let's just look textually real fast at verse 54. When they heard these things, so when the council heard Stephen's speech, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. This might be my favorite moment of the entire story. We heard at the end of chapter 6, Stephen went in front of the council with the face of an angel, right? There is something happening in this experience where Stephen is almost possessed by God, where he looks before he even speaks like an angel. And in this moment, after going through a thoughtful deconstruction of Jewish authority, sealing his own death. He has this ecstatic vision of God with Jesus at his right hand. And he sees it and shouts that he sees it. And yet, they covered their ears. Isn't that interesting? The way the story is told is such that they were so closed to the revelation of Stephen that they even physically covered their ears so as not to hear his words. Stephen sees, has this vision, and we've talked a little bit about this in here. I think it's, it's a good exercise for us to imagine what we think about heaven. I think that more and more people are trying to figure out how to describe heaven in a way that isn't like floating in the clouds above us. That's the easy image. But what we see here with Stephen is it's not, Stephen's not looking into the sky and seeing something. 
Stephen's really looking at what's in front of him and seeing a different reality. That is a powerful image because I think that that's more in line with the kind of heaven that Jesus talks about most. Not some other place or physically, but a possibility, an opportunity. What could be here on earth that we actually work toward what could be this possibility. And Stephen almost in this moment sees in front of him not the council and the leadership, but what could be, which is God on his throne with Jesus at his right hand, this heavenly council that we work toward. I mean, that's the ultimate call of Christianity is not not to be good and say magic words in order to, once we die, go to the pearly gates, but to actually work toward realizing heaven on earth now. That's the best of Christian discipleship, is not a promise of something good in the future, but working toward the, working in the bad in order to bring about the good. The council dragged him out of the city. We'll close out with verse 58. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay, Saul will come back. This is Paul, who as a young man was named Saul and was here to see this. And that's going to be important later on in Acts. When he pivots and becomes the Paul we know. Think back to what he saw as a young man in this moment. So they lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. Who does that sound like? just like Jesus on the cross, right? A prayer to receive the Spirit and a prayer for forgiveness for those executing him. It's a remarkable story. Stephen as a, as an example of the profound, complete love for every person. I mean, here Stephen is speaking truth to the power that he knows can and probably will kill him. And even after speaking that truth, loves those who are stoning him. I mean, it's remarkable. And again, it becomes the model for people. Stephen echoes Jesus clearly and will become the way in which future Christian apostles, disciples, teachers will conduct themselves in their own persecution. I saw a hand in the back. Thank you. So one of the windows here portrays the martyrdom of Stephen. They're hard to see today because it's dark outside. Um, but definitely, definitely look at it. Um, that's why I love stained glass windows because they give us these images so clearly. And so I wanted to just close, I suppose, today by bringing up the idea of martyrdom. It's not something that is only in the past. I think that we, in a, in a, in a different way, perhaps experience this idea of suffering for your faith. Um, we don't really ever suffer for our faith? Honestly. I mean, we might, we might have a spat or an argument with someone every now and then, but we probably don't even really do that because we tend to back off if someone challenges us rather than push in order to, into conflict, right? Most of us tend to be just so nice that we just kind of say, oh, whatever. Um, and so we don't, we don't really fight with that. But think about some of the things that we've experienced in our world that I think 
hurt us most deeply like those people who were killed at Emmanuel AME in Charleston or the people who were just killed at Tree of Life Synagogue. Or I even thought as I was preparing this, something that was incredibly formative to me, um, if you remember the young woman Cassie, who was executed in Columbine. And part of her story was she, with a gun to her head, said, do you believe in God? And she said, yes, and was killed. This is, in, in, a, in a world where vi- violence is more common than it should be, even those of us who find ourselves on some level jaded by the violence, still, at least I'll claim it, still when something happens like at the synagogue or at the church, that is a different, it's a different level of evil. Killing anyone is evil. There is something about going to a place of worship and killing people. I'm not sure what's worse. I mean, it's, it is hard to figure out anything that is perhaps more, more ugly and dark than that. And that's why I think it still, it still hits us so hard. Because even though we inherit these stories, and if you read the stories of any of our saints, I mean, probably fully half of them were martyred, if not more. And yet, we don't really expect this today. I mean, it is a stunning experience whenever someone is killed while they are worshiping, or even worse, when they claim their faith and then are killed for it. When it happens here. It happens elsewhere in the world every day. We just don't hear about it. And so as we read the story of Stephen, it's important for us to understand the intellectual argument he makes. But I also don't want us to write it off, even accidentally or unintentionally, as something that used to happen. Because it still happens today. And I think for us to read this story, we can't help but ask, what would we do in that moment? If someone asked you, what would you do? And I think, why? Because taking a pragmatic out, I don't think makes you a bad person. But there is a decision point that hopefully none of us will ever face. But the exercise of wondering what we would do in that moment, I hope is one that deepens our own faith and helps us commit ourselves even more so as disciples of Jesus. With that, I thank you. Happy Halloween, and we'll see you next week.